Rory Spiegel and Ryan Medecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. Ryan, Happy New Year. It's January 2024. God, yeah, and then with the dateline, and it's really next year down here. No, 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 no. It's, it's really just tomorrow, not next. It's still 2024. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Happy New Year. Well. And Happy New Year to our listeners. We'll just jump right into the new year and the new articles, and the first article from this current issue we're going to talk about is called Implementation of Electronic Health Record Integration and Clinical Decision Support to Improve Emergency Department Prescription Drug Monitoring Program Use. The lead author here is Jason Hopp from the University of Colorado. And I love this paper uh, because it's very much a reflection of reality. <laughs> no, of course you it's, do. <laughs> it's actually not because it's a decision support article and there's or an IT article <laughs> or a machine learning article. Because actually, because it's a reflection of reality rather than one of the many skewed and biased papers we present on the similar topics. You know, the ones that trumpet some local protocol success that has no hope of being sustained or generalizable. Specifically, the key to this paper is the sustained part as you'll hear as you follow along. This is one of those, uh, how can we use the electronic health record to improve the safety of opioid prescribing projects? Focusing on the prescription drug monitoring programs in place across many states in the United States. Many of you likely have access to these records of controlled substance prescribing. And depending on where you live, you may have access to more than one. If your hospital is near a border with another populous city, as I was in Portland, Oregon, I had both Oregon and Washington PDMP access. The goal with these PDMPs is to safeguard health by allowing providers to incorporate information regarding recent opioid prescribing into their decision-making, thus potentially reducing the number of opioids prescribed and thereby reducing dependency or overdose risk. In theory, this trial is a lovely stepped wedge design across three clusters of five hospitals in the Denver area, rolling out different aspects of this electronic health record integration with the PDMP at three-month staggered intervals. The first intervention was simply to link directly from the electronic health record to the PDMP website without an intermediate login step, which is nice. The second intervention was to show a risk score, cluing the clinician into the presence of significant PDMP data for review. Finally, the third intervention was an interruptive alert at the time of opioid prescribing, prompting the clinician to review the PDMP. There were two basic aims here. First, to get the clinicians to review the PDMP when they prescribed opioids, and then to see if viewing the PDMP would ultimately reduce the likelihood of prescribing an opioid. From a baseline of 10.6% of PDMP review at the time of opioid prescribing, the review percentage went down to 8.3% during the HR integration phase, up to 13.2% at the risk score phase, and then all the way up to 23.8% once the interruptive alert was implemented. I feel like most of the trial reports would have stopped here and just declared victory. But this trial, however, added one more phase, a sustainability phase, where they turned off that interruptive alert just to see what would happen. Since, you know, you can't just ceaselessly bombard clinicians with alerts. Well, once the alerts were gone, so were the clinicians. And their PDMP review dropped back down to the prior levels. And throughout all this, the percentage of all ED visits in which patients were prescribed opioids remained unchanged regardless of phase when accounting for individual factors and pre-existing time trends. Lots of interventions rearranging the deck chairs for very little overall effect. One small signal was identified. Uh, well, when the PDMP was reviewed and the patient had a high risk score, there was a reduction in the likelihood of opioids being prescribed. Probably some face validity to this signal, but it's not robust enough of finding to rely upon. Lots of investment and in interventions to try and boost the visibility of PDMP in the workflow 
And I certainly wouldn't argue against any of the sort of passive non-interruptive work, the integration, which will ultimately reduce clicks, and the score, which might clue folks into situations where the PDMP is more likely to affect practice when viewed. But the alert, no, no more alerts. <laughs> God, no, no more alerts. Yeah, I think that's all right. And you're right, it's fantastic. They did the post hoc phase where we looked at whether there was a sustained usage. And obviously there's not. Because here's the thing, even if there's one more click, it's too many clicks when you're on service and you're trying to discharge a person. It just becomes overburdensome. The more and more of these things you add, it, it's already hard enough to actually discharge someone, the amount of clicks that you have to do. So even one becomes too much. And you're right. The only way you could sustain this is have an alert that pops up all the time. And if you wanted higher usage, you could just make sure that you couldn't just click past it because the majority of clinicians still just clicked past it and ignored it and probably cursed at it. But outside of that, didn't really do much with it. In the end, what are we really getting from this? As you said, it didn't really change opiate usage. And then opiate usage is a surrogate for the outcomes that you really want, which is patient-centered outcomes, which, again, we've never found any of these things actually supporting. And so during this episode, there's going to be a whole lot of us saying, <laughs> please, no more alerts. But again, I think you have to be really careful because each one of these looks like just a small burden on the provider. But when you stack them on top of each other, on top of each other, it just becomes, the EHR becomes less and less usable on any That's precisely the point we've been trying to make over and over again, but uh, no one seems to be listening. Every new brilliant idea seems to involve a best practice alert for something with, again, some sort of compliance with some sort of measured surrogate versus an actual patient-oriented outcome. Is And then the sustainability phase, lots of people say, oh, look, we did it. People did it, clicked through, and they they, success, they it went everything went be got better. And then they never actually measure you know, a year or two down the road when they've been suffering through this, whether people are just blasting through it uh, they've gotten tired of that sort of like initial like oh wow a new alert oh okay i'm tired of this <laughs> yeah and and no one ever measures physician burnout with the 17 extra alerts you've added in, in a year-long period right all right our next article a year retrospective analysis of safety and pain reduction data for emergency practitioner performed ultrasound guided nerve blocks and the lead author is jeffrey mers harala Ultrasound-guided nerve blocks are used mostly to decrease pain for certain ailments, such as fractures or during specific procedures, line insertion, joint reduction, lack repair, et cetera. Um, and there's very little data on this topic. Usually, it's a small single-center study looking at a few patients. But these authors were at an emergency department that actually focused quite a bit on ultrasound-guided nerve blocks. Um, and so they conducted a retrospective analysis on 420 emergency physician-performed ultrasound-guided nerve blocks via chart review. This AD had deployed a template note for every nerve block that was performed. So the authors just simply had to examine all the nerve block notes uh, over this time period to identify their patients. Uh, four emergency physician abstractors reviewed all templated ultrasound-guided nerve block notes, the resulting nurse records and patient charts for those patients once they were identified. They excluded nerve blocks that did not require ultrasound guidance, for example, dental blocks, landmark-based blocks, trigger points, etc. Over this year-long period, 75 emergency physicians performed 420 nerve blocks, and most of these were done by residents, so 61.9%, followed by APPs, 21%, ultrasound-trained faculty, then non-ultrasound faculty, and then a small percentage, 1.7, were non-recorded who actually did the nerve block. The vast majority of these nerve blocks were performed for either fractured or reductions, 65.2%. But there was a bunch of other stuff, lacerations, neuropathic pain, a specific procedure, abscess drainage, abdominal pain, 
shingles, foreign body removal. So, so a fair variety of what they were doing. They performed a variety of nerve blocks themselves. The most common was femoral nerve or fascia iliaca block at 21.2%. But they did a bunch of others, serratus anterior, recti spinae, interscalene, supraclavicular, so on and so forth. Again, a, a variety of nerve blocks were performed by these clinicians. They report only one complication occurring during this study period, which is an arterial puncture, which was recognized by aspirating blood before injecting any lidocaine, and there was no actual complications from this arterial puncture. Among the 261 nerve blocks that actually had pre and post pain score, uh, they had a pretty significant reduction in pain score from 7.4% to 2.8, which is fairly significant. So all in all, I mean, I think this is a fairly general review of the nerve blocks. And again, this is only stuff you can pull from a templated note. But it does speak to when you have a department that becomes fairly proficient or very confident in using nerve blocks, how often they can be used, the variety of, of complaints and the variety of, of problems that nerve blocks can help you with. I think the data describing the pain reduction here, again, is hard. There's no placebo group, and it's really just what was in the note. That being said, I think we have pretty good data that nerve blocks are fairly effective at reducing pain when they're done correctly. The limitations here, are obviously, again, it's what we could get from the chart. Um, so not all complication could have been noted if no one put it down in the chart. Um, the other thing on patients who were discharged, they did try to follow up to see if they were in their records, but any complications post-discharge might have been missed as well. Yeah, I mean, this is basically just a pretty low-quality, descriptive, observational sort of uh, retrospective study, just you know, chart review. We have no idea. There's no rigorous reporting of complications. There's not really that much rigorous reporting of like outcomes. Maybe you only documented when the patient actually had pain improvement after the procedure and the, all the people who didn't have pain improvement documented didn't have pain improvement documented. You have no idea. But generally speaking, there's face validity to regional anesthesia. It's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, the question is like, how effective are emergency doctors at it? Well, you can train anybody to be really effective at it if you do enough and you have a good training program. Uh, and that's, I think that's essentially what they're trying to get at here is that this place, this Highland Hospital, has a really strong regional anesthesia training program. And the emergency doctors and the other people who work in the emergency department are probably very proficient at it, relatively speaking. And this is no different than what you would get from like an anesthesia rotation where you're doing regional anesthesia. And the, the kind of people who come to, come to the operating room for regional anesthesia to set people up for orthopedic injuries and surgeries and who knows what. Um, they do a really wide variety of blocks. I think most ER doctors are really competent with like femoral nerve fascia iliaca type blocks, but they do a lot of interesting stuff like popliteal blocks. I've had a popliteal block before. That's a, that's a unique that's a unique one. Um, it definitely requires ultrasound and it's quite painful to receive. Um, but uh, yeah, there's you know, greater occipital nerve. There's a lot of stuff that's achievable, but it's definitely not generally in your general practice for most emergency physicians. So, uh, you know, it's a nice descriptive study. Just uh, If anything, it opens your mind to the wide variety of regional anesthesia could be providing in the emergency department. Um, and I, I would 100% endorse being trained in this um, if we weren't too busy uh, clicking through boxes and alerts. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that's the most impressive part, right? Like 420 nerve blocks over a year. I mean, I, I think if you looked at most sites, you wouldn't get even close to that, right? You would be lucky if you broke double digits. And these are ultrasound nerve blocks. You know, we all do like digital blocks or so forth. But as you said, this takes a lot of training and a lot of investment. And most of us seem to be spending that time doing other stuff that may or may not be as um, You know, and certainly you have to have the time to set up, the, set this up. 
uh, and a lot of a lot of high throughput sort of emergency departments, community emergency departments, places where the waiting room is ma- is massively deep, or there's just only one provider. You just don't have time for this, unfortunately. Although you could probably make cases for it for, com- as compared to the time it takes to set up for say you know procedural sedation or something like that for some of these things. It yeah. In any event, a valuable tool, nice descriptive study. Can't really put a ton of weight into it. All right, go on to the next little article from this issue, which is entitled An Electronic Medical Record Intervention to Increase Pharmacologic Prophylaxis for Venous Thromboembolism in Emergency Department Observation Patients. Our lead author here is Christopher Bao, and they are at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And here we are, it's alert time again. Uh, the best practice variety, which should clue you into the fact we're running epic in this situation. <laughs> uh, this is a study addressing an ED observation or extended ED boarding scenario, one in which a patient stays long enough in the emergency department uh, in a bed to be considered potentially at elevated risk for venous thromboembolism. In general practice, when a patient is admitted from the ED, they undergo VTE assessment and pharmacologic prophylaxis is considered based on their risk factors and acuity of their illness. Uh, In the ED, well, that's typically beyond our scope, or it was until we started holding folks for prolonged periods of time waiting for inpatient beds or running up our, uh, setting up our little observation units where people are staying uh, a longer time than we intended. This best practice alert uh, pops up effectively for qualifying patients at the 24-hour mark. Pops up with sort of a pre-calculated score based on information available in the electronic health record. Uh, and then gives clinicians an option to either open an order set or dismiss. In order to dismiss, clinicians have to choose a reason. Their approach is simply an interrupted time series analysis, a fancy way of saying before and after. Before, the rate of VTE prophylaxis in the qualifying population was 0.9%. After, it was 4.8%. So, ha, we did it. So, adding one more alert to the burden, per the authors, they already had in place 1,030 active alerts with an average of 5.4 alerts per patient already, a small increase in VTE prophylaxis. However, the leap again from more VTE prophylaxis to improving patient outcomes is substantial considering one, this is an out- activity outside the typical training scope of EM and the appropriateness of the VTE prophylaxis ordered is not audited. And two, we don't know whether the VTE prophylaxis is associated with VTE prevention in the population of patients whose entire episode of care is managed in the ED or an ED observation. But hey, if you all already have 1,030 alerts already. What's the harm in having (laughs) 1,031? I'm also rather sad they didn't report which of their override dismissal options were the most popular. Uh, In the study I co-authored, we found clinicians just pick an assortment of inaccurate or irrelevant reasons for alert overrides. It would have been a fun (laughs) side report to see the author's experience. I mean, I completely agree. I I think one of the interesting things that, that someone should do a study on is like, does the uptake on alerts go down as you add more and more alerts to the system, right? Like, do these alerts become meaningful if you had two or three, right? But once you have a thousand, you're just like clicking past them all. Oh, I mean, they've, they've looked at like override rates and things like that. And it's just like, I mean, most alerts are accepted, you know, 10, 20% of the time, like especially drug, drug interaction alerts and these sorts of things. It's just like people just click, not, not irrelevant or ignore or whatever it is, you know, just dismiss it, get off my screen. I've already decided I'm doing this and this is just a speed bump. Right. Right. And, and I think you would imagine like what I don't think they've looked at is like the boy who cries wolf criteria that like as you get more and more and as you become less and less affected by each one, 
you know, the relative effectiveness or usefulness of each alert becomes less and less versus if you just had a few of them that were really important. You probably <laughs> oh, alert fatigue is a very, very robust area of research in clinical informatics, and it's totally a thing. I mean, it's just, it's like automation bias. If you expect something to always be there, then it's it's always, you tune it out. It doesn't have any effect on practice at a certain point. I mean, these, I guess, you know, they obviously manage to compel somebody to do a little bit more. But again, like, what's the point? What have we proven here? The VTE prophylaxis this literature doesn't apply to this population. I mean, nor does it apply, but let's say, let's say it even did provide. Like, what's the number needed to treat in VT prophylaxis? Fairly low, right? What's the, And then you only get, you're only getting a 3% increase in uptake, right? The amount of alerts you're going to have to deal with to have one patient benefit is in the thousands at best, right? And and that benefit is you prevent a small at DVT best. that you would, you know, <laughs> We're talking about best, in the thousands right, at, best. at best. Probably right? in the tens of thousands in reality. <laughs> yeah. And it probably just checks off a box in some quality assurance, you know, administrators, like whatever, they're going to get like a little award at the end of the year because they rolled out this best practice initiative. Great job, quality. And again, the harms here are often underseen, right? With all the, the alerts and the fatigue. But technically, they don't measure any of the complications. Uh, I mean, if you are giving VTE prophylaxis, it is technically some sort of pharmacological intervention. There is a potential complications related to anticoagulation or the administration of an anticoagulant. Uh, and there's obviously no attempt to, to detect any of that or measure any of the you know, actual patient-oriented effects. I think in the end, there's a lot of assumptions that go into this article and kind of linking it with any kind of benefit that might happen. And I think all those assumptions probably um, take you to a point where the likelihood that you're going to benefit is exquisitely, exquisitely low. Final article of the month, uh, and this is an interesting one, Hacking Acute Care, a qualitative study on the healthcare impacts of ransomware attacks against hospitals. And the lead author is Lisa Lett Bovin. So this was a fascinating article that sought to describe the experience of healthcare professionals that were working in hospitals during a ransomware attack. Ransomware is a type of malware that is intentionally inserted into the software uh, for harmful purposes. Typically, it encrypts data, uh, rendering the data ineffective or inaccessible um, until a ransom payment is made to the perpetrators. And these attacks disrupt patient care and potentially have severe consequences on patient well-being uh, as clinicians are unable to access the healthcare software. So these authors conducted a semi-structured interview with healthcare professionals and IT staff to explore the experience and roles uh, during large ransomware attacks. And they defined large ransomware attacks as attacks with a serious disruption of acute care, including inpatient transfers, disruption of acute care services, and loss of access to the EHR. The authors constructed a list of large ransomware attacks against hospitals in Europe and the United States between 2007 and 2022, based on review of the literature, news articles, Google News, Google Scholar, PubMed, etc. They then identified potential interviewees based on this list of hospitals and reached out. 25 hospitals were invited to participate. Most of them did that, not. 19 didn't respond. Three didn't wish to participate. So overall, they had a total of nine individuals from four different organizations that experienced a ransomware attack. The most notable effect of the ransomware attack, according to the interviews, was a loss of technological availability unsurprising. Imagine just a, a downtime that lasted forever. A quote from the article, hospitals have become so digital that you really can't work without these systems. It's a scary thought. 
The next disruption that the interviewees prescribes is a lack of communications tools, such as internal telephones, emails, et cetera. Basically, the inability to talk with the other providers, other uh, departments, so on and so forth, because of the internal communication infrastructure of the hospital has been disrupted. And with that comes this idea that diagnostics is also disrupted. So laboratory and radiological tests, you have a trouble ordering them, you have a trouble getting the patients to the test, you have a trouble getting the interpretations of the test back to the providers. And this all works into the idea that you've disrupted patient safety, obviously, because the patient's um, are unable to get the test they need. You're unable to get the results you need. Um, you're also unable to access the EHR and decide what to figure out what the patient's histories were, what their medications were, whether they had any recent surgeries, so on and so forth. They go on to then go on to talk about the emergency plans and the inadequacy of them. That most of these hospitals did have a plan for a cyber attack, but none of them were adequate to actually deal with the cyber attack that happened. I, I, I think that's fair. I mean, even when you look at our um, our downtime plans and the way they're built, most of them are built under the assumption that the downtime is going to end within a few hours, and so you only have to um, go without your EHR and your your. Uh, electronic infrastructure for a short period of time. And what that mostly means is most of us just kind of like stop doing work and wait for it to come back on, and then you're able to just redo work again. But imagine it wasn't going to come back at a specific time. You didn't know, and it's going to last days or weeks. And so all the downtime plans just weren't built to deal with a cyber attack that went on for days or weeks. And then they describe a lot of the information that was gained during the downtime when they went to paper charts, communicating for via cell phones, having runners go back and forth, so on and so forth, was all lost because they had no real way of recording it. They do describe they identified a number of lessons to kind of improve for future attacks. Basically, you want to come up with a way or agreed upon way to, to continue communicating through departments, through services while these cyber attacks happen. So it's either walkie-talkie, cell phones, something that goes outside the normal infrastructure of the hospitals in case your normal infrastructure is shut down. Improving IT security throughout these things just to, to make the cyber attacks less likely to happen. Um, and then improving contingency plans. And usually what they mean here is actually having SIM uh, cyber attacks occur, having tabletop uh, cyber attacks. So you can try to figure out some of the stuff you might not have expected if a cyber attack were to happen. So essentially, it was a really interesting summary of some of the cyber attack events. Uh, again, it's very limited. This was only nine people in four different hospitals that experienced a cyber attack. So the external validity may not be there, but there's so little data and so little actual description of these events, it does give you some insight into what you might expect and, and the kind of things you should plan on. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this article is basically just a reminder that these attacks happen and uh, ransomware things exist, and it's a nice little window into the disruptions you get inside the hospital of these uh, sorts of things. Because most people have never lived through a ransomware attack on their hospital; they've never had to deal with these kinds of shutdowns, and they've never really had to do more than, like, like you say, a downtime where they just stop documenting for two hours, but they still have access to the shadow EHR and they can see retrospective records and blah blah blah. So it's like you know, pseudo downtime, the way that Epic goes down shadow access. But yeah, this is, this is going to be a real big deal. Obviously, we had a, a cyber attack actually in uh, New Zealand uh, a couple of years ago for the Waikato Hospital, and they were down for like two weeks. It was a total disaster. They were like outsourcing patients to like other areas of the country. They had Air New Zealand flights got canceled because they're, uh, they couldn't get certain like health data out of the electronic health record to certify airplane staff to fly. It was crazy. Really big disruption. And these, these ransomware attacks don't just end in two hours, as you can see. They, they go on for days, and you have significant 
data loss and it's a threat to patient safety. And I don't think there's any way to really plan for it other than the contingencies. Certainly the IT security stuff, it's nice to have, maybe a small deterrent, but I think you know, the more sophisticated your security systems, the more sophisticated the hacker is. You can just assume it's going to get hacked. There's no such thing as an unhackable system. Um, so uh, it's like, it's just super downtime uh, sort of contingency plans and everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face to some extent. Right. I mean, I think that's the problem, right? Like we can all come up with plans, but you instantaneously see there's so many things you didn't think of as soon as one of these things happen, right? And the hardest one is time, right? Like not knowing how long this is going to go on and not knowing how many, even when it's over, the downstream consequences of the time you were down affects you for weeks and months afterwards. Well, yeah. Uh, like last year we had a power outage in my building in the hospital. And usually you, you guys test this all the time. Like the generators are supposed to come back on within like five to 10 seconds. Generators didn't yeah. come back on. <laughs> Entire <laughs> yeah. building had no power. They've got the emergency little like thing on the wall, like how, what you're supposed to do. And it's like, call this number. And the phones have no power. <laughs> it's like, you know, whatever, you know, infrastructure failure, like call this number. And it's like, ah, phones are dead. <laughs> so we've already failed step one no in trying to manage this emergency. We have no communication. <laughs> And we had no idea how long it's going to go on. It's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, it was actually my first on-call 24-hour shift as an ICU attending. The generators failed as when the power went down. We had a blackout in DC and the generators failed and, and we were yeah, out for yep. like three Same to four hours. Yeah, where I was <laughs> like, too. Yeah. In the ER. That was fun. Just as a quick side note, there's also a couple little research letters in this uh, off, uh, this issue about ChatGPT and its performance, uh, sort of comparing it to emergency physicians and ChatGPT taking the emergency medicine boards, at least a sample of 50 odd questions that were like, you know, really straightforward. Um, and it roughly provides a differential diagnosis or answers some like short answer questions, basically equivalently to a emergency physician or some emergency physicians, which pretty consistent with all the other literature being published around you that uh, it can retrieve information from the internet and spit it out and uh, more or less you know find something that you know, replicate something that looks like um, an emergency medicine you know uh, board question and associate that, that data which is a big step from actually being a useful adjunct to clinical operations um, but you know you can tell this is an active area of ongoing research. Yeah, as soon as chap GPT can write my notes. Getting there, they're testing it at Kaiser. Maybe I know, I, yeah, I know, it's I getting close. A <laughs> New, New England Journal Catalyst report that just came out today about uh, their initial experience with uh, letting a large language model, not chat GPT, but a large language model passively listen and then write their notes for them. Yeah, that would be fantastic. That would be a huge, finally, some kind of EHR IT that improves our, our well-being rather than the opposite. Yeah, that wraps us up. As always, any questions, comments, or concerns, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asap.org. Otherwise, we'll see you all next month. Bye.